Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, we don't yet know when the UCP is going to crown a new leader and, and obviously by extension, uh, Alberta swearing in a new premier. In fact, the, the race hasn't officially been called, but it is coming. Uh, Jason Kenney has made it clear that uh, he intends to resign. He has not yet officially done so. So the party's in the process uh, of preparing for a leadership race. So we know that is looming. That is coming. And uh, the field's starting to, to get a little bit crowded. I think we're now up to six candidates announcing their intention to contest to be the next uh, leader of the party. And by extension, as mentioned, uh, the premier of Alberta. Uh, today, the race got a really interesting new voice. Uh, Leela Ahir, who's the UCP MLA for Strathmore Chestermere, uh, has announced that uh, she is running for the leadership of the party. And uh, very pleased to welcome Leela Ahir to the program here this afternoon. Leela, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I, as always, so honored to be on your program. Well, it's a big day, and obviously this, this is a big decision for you uh, to, to jump into this race. So walk us through your thought process, you know, from, from the last few weeks when she realized there was going to be a race and, and why you've ultimately made the decision to jump in. I just, it's been such a privilege serving as an MLA and a minister. And so many of these things have brought us together as communities and just seeing all of that and the impact on our province and to, to be able to see change and have honest conversations about family and community and business and economy and our vulnerable populations, the environment, our resource sector, to be able to engage. I know that you've probably heard me say this a hundred times, but, you know, the leadership review and the, the leadership race has, is just a magnificent opportunity for us to be able to re-engage with Albertans and earn their trust back and be in front of them and hear them and hear what they've been going through and truly, truly get back to you know, the reasons that we were here and to build trust in those institutions again. I'm, I'm just so honored. I'm so excited. Well, and I mean, obviously, for all intents and purposes, that process begins now. But what's mm-hmm. your understanding of, of, you know, the structure of this race and, and how and when this is all going to play out? What are you hearing at this point? <laughs> I think you and I could probably have multiple guesses about yeah. that. I Honestly, I don't know anything about the rules or anything. Nothing has been disclosed to us at all. Um, there's been numbers anywhere tossed around between, you know, getting even into the race between like 90000 and $150,000, you know, to, to be able to have, you know, the, the, uh, the, the bonds and the dollars to start, right? Um, we don't know anything about the time limitations. I believe, I don't know if you saw this, but I saw something about June 14th that the rules would be released at that time. So uh, your guess is as good as mine, but re- despite and regardless of all of that, um, the most important thing is to be able to give folks some opportunities to get to know those of us who are interested in serving in this capacity. And I'm, I'm so excited to, to get started and to, to be with people and to hear from them and to have honest conversations about what's going on in our province. 
Right. And I mean, it's a real crossroads for the party. And this is an interesting mm-hmm. moment, I think, because, you know, obviously there was there was a big mandate in 2019. A lot of Albertans put their trust in this party. And, you know, some of that trust has, has been broken, uh, you know, and as you say, there's yeah. maybe a need to, to rebuild that. What, what do you think the lessons are that the party needs to learn from, you know, where, where things are at right now? Well, um, one thing is humility. Um, and humility isn't just a word. The actions of humility are apologizing when you're wrong understanding when the status quo doesn't work and to look at change, to be able to look at policy and direction and legislation from the eyes of many, many people, because as legislators, we're there to legislate on behalf of the entire province, not just the folks that vote us in. And to be able to have robust debate and conversations around that legislation in an honest way, um, to make sure that that, that that democratic process is upheld. For me, that's everything right? If you think about it, it's invigorating. It lifts all of us. It makes you optimistic when you can debate a piece of legislation. You might not always agree on how you do it, but it's such an imperative part of the process. And then by virtue of that, I think you become a better person, a more well-rounded and grounded person. You leave your ego at the door because you realize that good ideas come from anywhere. And I'm, again, super excited to talk to folks about that because I just, For me, this is like a humanistic perspective. It's not leader-centric. If you happen to have the privilege of being the leader, you're one of those people that that go along with your cabinet and your in your MLAs. If you're so fortunate to be able to lead forward, and you you form the foundation of what is important, you're not top down. You're the foundation, and Albertans get to stand on your shoulders. Well, and obviously, I mean, you know, you, you've got a unique perspective on all of that as someone who was at the cabinet table, but also mm-hmm. felt compelled to speak out on some matters of principle and, you know, some, some comments that cost you that, those cabinet responsibilities. So as, as you think about it from how you would lead this party and how you would deal with voices within caucus that have concerns or, or that, you know, individuals feel compelled to speak out on, on matters of principle, how does, how does that need to be handled? How does the leader need to deal with those kinds of situations? Yeah, that's... That's probably one of the most important questions because I think if, if we think about, I mean, we're a brand new party, you know, uh, we were brought together in a, you know, a whirlwind of, com- you know, coming together in this situation to unite the conservatives, right? When you bring a party like that together, you start off with this wonderful thought process of what you're going to do, but it takes a very compelling leader and a management capacity to be able to bring, especially when your idea idea behind it is to be big tent, right? So you're going to have people from all over the spectrum in your party. And to be able to bring together those folks, all of those ideas, to have compelling discussions, to understand what's in the best interest of Alberta, not your ideology, takes a very compelling leader and a person. And I was explaining this earlier. The best way I can describe it is like this. And maybe because I'm a musician, this just resonates with me. But you're a choir conductor and you have a lot of different voices and personalities coming to you and you have to get everybody singing from the songbook with all of their different voices and the colors and the timbres and the tones to make a beautiful sound. And that takes practice. It takes time. It takes compassion. It takes relationship building. It takes the ability to be humble, acknowledge when you've done it wrong, back down from things, have enough ability for people to talk, talk it out so that you catch the mistakes before they happen, that your legislation isn't about quantity, it's about quality, that you lead by example, right? Leading by example is probably one of the most important things that you can do. If, you, if, if language is coming out 
that is divisive and hurts people and is expected that your caucus and cabinet will stand behind you. You can't expect people to stand behind divisive language. You can't expect people to stand behind um, language that pokes, um, you know, at particular groups and organizations in order to elevate yourself. You have to lead by example and create compelling arguments to work within that space. That's what we need to have. And that's going to, whoever come, becomes the leader of this party, if we're so privileged to be able to go forward, is going to understand that it's not about lofty ideals. It's about realistic and pragmatic and common sense things. And, you know, we measure our success by what we leave for our children, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, certainly, you know, there's, there's a need for some change. I think the party's made that decision. But, you know, just changing the leader might not be enough to heal right. all of these fractures and, and divisions within the party. And it's possible that, that a heated leadership race could exacerbate that. But you know, do you think there's still a path to, to, to unifying this party? I do, actually. I think that um, what we've learned in the past is that division doesn't work, right? Um, at least I hope. I know I've learned that. Um, this campaign for us is not about talking about other people's mistakes. We know the mistakes that have been made. In order for somebody like me to be successful, it's actually about what I bring to the table and the solutions that I can provide. The past is the past, and we have to deal with that. And part of that is acknowledging and apologizing for those mistakes. Like, for example, to doctors and nurses and other, other institutions and organizations that we've chosen to fight with versus working collaboratively with. And for me, honestly, if... The word collaboration is one of those things that is at the top of my list of what's necessary, right? Yeah. If that, think about it from this perspective. You've, you've, been, you've been following this for a long time and the rhetoric and the negativity that it has been in our province throughout COVID and everything. What did that do for anybody in this province? It didn't do anything other than divide us. It didn't help the cause of COVID. It didn't help us to help people through that. It didn't speak to their pain or their frustration or to the immense generosity and kindness that was shown during such a difficult period. Instead, the focus was on, you know, who had the right language around what and who was the smartest person at the table versus actually talking to Albertans where they were at and giving them the right information when they needed it, communicating it in a way that made us all be successful given the circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that all of those things, that's what I've learned anyways. And I can't speak for anybody else, but those are those are those pieces of humility and communication that I've learned from that. And if I, this isn't even an if anymore, we are absolutely required to be able to work together. We are required to not continue the division and the frustration and anger. And Albertans expect better from us, and they expect the ability for us to be able to work together and to have the maturity to have honest conversations and also to call out the mistakes when they happen. Well, that's it, right? And I, I know this race will be a great opportunity, you know, to talk about policy. And I think mm -hmm. there's an interesting balance here, you know, in, in recognizing the mistakes of the past, but also realizing where there's been successes, where, yeah. you know, Alberta is on the right track in certain areas. So how do you see that side of it in terms of, okay, well, here's where, you know, the party's made smart decisions. Here's where, you know, we're, we're doing right by Albertans, that we build on that success, but, but make up for the mistakes. So, you know, that side of it, where, where are we at in terms of policy? Is Alberta on the right track? Well, I'm actually optimistic. And it's interesting that you bring up policy because it matters so much. Um, the good policies that we brought forward, and I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously there's bills that I've debated. I mean, we just yeah. had the bereavement bill come forward. 
Um, my bill was passed. We had, you know, legislation, really, really important legislation that's passed. I mean, you and I could have like a four-hour-long conversation about that. Right. I think there's been some very good legislation and policy that has come down the pipe. The, 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 and I'm super optimistic about our opportunities here. Having said that, though, none of that matters to people if the policy that you're making, as good as it is, is outweighed by corruption that is happening internally. And that's, that's where we have to look at that. We have to earn Albertan trust back. And we have to make sure that we're able to share that, you know, this is why we did these policies and this is the outcome. You know, the one thing that I don't hear about ever is, well, that piece of policy really impacted me in a positive way on the streets. We hear about education and we hear about health and we hear about the relationship building and putting our communities back together. That's what I hear about all the time, like every single day. Or energy costs, right? Natural gas, um, you know, taking care of our seniors. All of those, those are the things that keep coming up. And, you know, our economy and our people will thrive because of the resilience of Alberta. We, you know, we, we do well despite what governments bring in, you know, but it's time to show a compassionate, empathetic, empowering and respect for democracy style. Policy then will always follow the lead of how the people work and what we need to be able to present to them. And that requires collaboration and a lot more consultation so that those policies are validated, that we have lots of people helping us to determine what that goes for it, and that there's a humongous amount of transparency around that. Well, looking forward to this race and looking forward to hearing uh, much more. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Leela, again, congrats on this, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, and have a beautiful day, and thank you for having me on. You as well. All the best. Uh, there you go, Leela here, the UCP MLA for Chestermere Strathmore. Uh, I think I called it Strathmore Chestermere, and, you know, hey, Chestermere says, look, we get to go first. Make sure you put it that way. So uh, Chestermere Strathmore is the writing. Uh, Leela here aspiring to be the next uh, leader of the party. Uh, so she's in this race as much as there is a race. <laughs> Not officially underway, so we don't know the whole timeline or when this is all going to culminate. But, uh, yeah, it's more or less underway now. So if you're going to get in, there's some decisions to be made. So we're up to six. It'll be interesting to see how many more we get. And, and I think you see some, not necessarily factions, maybe to some extent. But I think you see different visions, uh, you know, for, for what the party needs to be, where the party needs to go, how the party got to where it is. So, like I say, I think it's going to be a really interesting race to watch. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I, I think uh, a welcome addition there. All right, your thoughts. Uh, you can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063, in Calgary, 403-974-8255. What are the lessons that the party needs to learn from how it got here? You know, where it was in the spring of 2019 and where they are now. Why Jason Kenney is bowing out. Why the party's having to elect a new leader. What are the lessons that leader needs to draw from this whole experience? Where did the party go wrong with Albertans? Is it on leadership style? Is it on policy? So even if you have a leader who comes in who's more humble, who's more willing to listen, to be collaborative, do Albertans want different policy, a different approach? You know, one of the surprising things about Jason Kenney's downfall is that, you know, more or less Alberta seems to be doing well. The economy's recovering. Uh, the budget is balanced. We're back to, you know, conversations about what to do with massive surpluses. The kinds of conditions that any incumbent would want to have, but obviously didn't benefit Jason Kenney. Is it going to be enough to, to carry a new leader to success? Or, or do we need to refocus in certain areas? <laughs> 
to begin at the top of this hour, though, with something that uh, I think is on the minds of a lot of Albertans uh, at the moment. Uh, gasoline prices, which are on the march northward again. Uh, you know, even despite the Alberta government's decision to pause, to suspend the 13 cents per liter gasoline excise tax, uh, it looks as though we'll soon be joining most of the rest of the country in that territory of $2 a liter. So prices are going up. It's not just in Alberta, not just in Canada either. And it's the result of, well, a lot of different factors. Simply put, now supply and demand, that's pushing up commodity prices. At last check today, West Texas Intermediate uh, trading at over $120 a barrel. Now there's continued fallout, obviously, from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What's that done to global supply? The impact that's now having on Russia, which is a major oil producer and producer of refined product. Uh, And their production numbers are down considerably. Refinery margins in the U.S. are in record territory. There's a lot going on. The end result uh, was what you're seeing at at your local gas station. So joining us to try to break it down a little bit further, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, commodity analyst Rory Johnston, founder of Commodity Context, and a deep dive on all of this at commoditycontext.com. Rory, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, so, yeah, we're seeing gasoline prices on the rise. Uh, you know, as I say, even here in Alberta, we're closing in on that uh, $2 a liter threshold. So what, what's causing, simply put, if we can, this, this latest spike we're seeing here? Yeah, so, and, and that, as you were saying, so I'm in, I'm in Toronto, and we're, you know, just down the road from me as well, over 210 a liter for gasoline right now. So we're, we're at the highest levels in history for Canada at the pump. Uh, so I think it makes a lot of sense that people are feeling the pain and kind of, you know, you know, every time you fill up the tank, it's easily over a hundred bucks, uh, you know, uh, yeah. to fill up the family car. So it's definitely painful. Um, and, and what we're seeing, like you were saying, is it's a kind of a perfect storm of factors driving this. So we've got tight global oil markets that were already tight to begin the year. And then were made tighter when, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine and threw markets into a tizzy. Uh, and then we all we are also having kind of a tightening, you know, uh, conditions in the refining market. And like you were saying, Russia, in addition to being a major exporter of crude oil, is also actually a major exporter of refined products, particularly what we call middle distillates or diesel. Um, so that's why you saw this, you know, real crisis begin in the diesel market. And now, as refineries around the world are trying to chase that diesel profit signal, and they're trying to switch as much as they can over to diesel. Now we're kind of running low on gasoline heading right into the driving season. So, you know, this is a very typical result, like you were saying, of deeply undersupplied markets and very non-responsive supplier, or, sorry, very non-responsive demand right now, despite the high prices. Let's talk a bit more about Russia right now, um, because it, it's interesting to see that, you know, it's, it's taken a little bit, obviously, but now all of these, these sanctions are having a real impact. And so you, you got some interesting uh, charts that show just how dramatic this is. So even though Russia still has markets it can export to, it's not the entire planet that's, that's uh, put sanctions on, on Russian oil exports, um, but their production has dropped off considerably. So why, why is that now happening? Yeah, that's right. So I actually published a note on this this morning. Um, and specifically what's happening is we've actually, you know, the crisis for Russia really started on its refining side, that, you know, it was still able to find export markets for its crude oil, uh, you know, increasingly heading to China and India in particular. Uh, but it was having trouble, you know, marketing a lot of these refined products, particularly like dirtier products like fuel oil or this, you know, what people call like Russian sludge, which is like a residual input product. Uh, that typically was often sold to, for instance, U.S. refineries. 
So as those bands started hitting and you couldn't find places to put that refined product, you, you, what, you've, what you've seen as a, as a drop-off of almost a million barrels a day of refining uh, capacity or refining throughput in Russia. So that's effectively been lost to the market. And that's the only reason that crude exports have actually remained relatively stable despite despite the sanctions is because you know uh you know you've lost all those product product exports production is still down almost a million barrels a day steadied a little bit in may but it's still down substantially and and i expect it's going to fall further by the end of the year so where are countries turning to that that would normally import that product from russia so for instance uh you know europe is is a classic example and increasingly uh, what you're seeing is more and more product from the U.S. going to Europe, more and more crude oil that was typically heading uh, to China and India, for instance, from West African producers, those crudes are now actually going north to Asia. So you're seeing this, you know, big rebalancing of the market. But because of the inefficiency and, and the efficiency losses to that process, you're also effectively pulling back supply. Because, you know, uh, as a great example of, of how much more difficult it is for Russia to ship to Asia instead of Europe, it only takes a couple days or maybe a week in terms of a return trip for a tanker uh, of Russian crude from its northern ports to Europe, whereas it's upwards of two months for the same shipment. So what you're seeing is this big loss in transit right now. Now, turning back to, to the situation with refineries, and obviously, uh, you know, the price of inputs is going to affect the, the final product. So the price of oil has a, a correlation with the price of gasoline, but uh, there, there are other factors as well. There's the refinery margins. There's also this term, I guess we call it crack spread, right? How, how do you explain crack spread? Yeah, and, and I think it's important for people to understand that crack spread and refining margin are kind of the same thing. Okay. And what a crack spread, which is the industry term for it, is essentially meaning when a, when a refiner refines crude, they talk about cracking it or, or breaking down the molecules into, into things that are more usable, like gasoline, which is shorter chain uh, kind of hydrocarbons. Um, so that's why you call them crack spreads. And the crack spread is essentially the difference between the price of oil, so WTI, say, and the price of gasoline. So each product has a crack. And then each, you know, overall, we typically talk about in baskets. So, you know, you throw in, you know, three barrels or, or two barrels of gasoline, a barrel of diesel versus three barrels of crude. And that's your kind of blended average. And those are near all-time highs right now. And that's because, one, we've lost capacity from Russia, like we were talking about earlier. Second, you've seen export constraints in China where they actually have spare refining capacity, but they're not letting those exports out for a whole bunch of domestic reasons. And then in North America and Europe, what you've seen over the past 10, 20 years is a chronic shedding of refining capacity in, in those advanced markets. That's because for most of, I mean, the entire time I've been in the industry, refining has been a very, very low margin, kind of loss leading kind of industry, more about securing your supply chain than actually making money. And now it's one of the most profitable kind of businesses in the world. Yeah, and I was reading a piece, I mean, even in the U.S., you know, going through, you know, the first two years of COVID, there, there were some refineries that, that scaled back in capacity, some refineries that, that just shut down altogether because of lack of demand. And, and in some cases, that hasn't come back. So, you know, there, there's fewer refineries basically trying to meet all of this demand. Exactly, exactly. And I don't think, I don't think a lot of people saw, you know, that particular crunch coming because, again, it had been... You know, refining had been dreary and over capacity for so long that I think that the combination of those steady declines over the past decade and then the fact that we've gotten, you know, a big jump in acceleration, essentially advanced or accelerated retirements that, you know, along that line all at once 
And, you know, looking back, you would have thought, oh, okay, and we still will get more refining capacity online in Africa and Asia, but it's not coming on as quickly, because, you know, as, as what fell off when it fell off. So that's the challenge is we're at a bit of this, you know, you know, fallen bridge in the middle of connecting those two, those two points. And yeah, look, I mean, here in Alberta, we've got a lot of refining capacity, but, you know, we've just been through a saga of trying to, to build a new refinery, the Sturgeon Refinery. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that took years. Uh, that took billions of dollars, a considerable commitment from the Alberta government to make that happen. It's kind of an example of the challenge of, of adding new refining capacity. It's not so simple to just say, hey, let's, let's build some new refineries. Yeah, extremely capital intensive, extremely long lived assets. You know, there's, you know, I was reading a story today about a, 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 a refinery that they're planning on closing down, you know, more refining shedding into next year at 260 something thousand barrel a day refinery in Houston. The challenge is it's, it's over 100 years old. That, that's how old a lot of this infrastructure is that's underpinning the North American market. And so when you see, you know, like an accident happen, there was the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery back in, I want to say May 2020, that set fire and exploded, and then you lost the entire refinery. You've seen just chronic issues like this that, you know, the systems are already complicated and volatile. They're old, and now because of this lack of capacity globally, they're all being run so hard. Everyone's trying to chase that profit that things are going to start breaking down as well, which is going to further contribute to the crisis. Well, it's a scary thing, right? I mean, all it takes is, you know, one hurricane in the Gulf Coast uh, knock out some of this capacity for a while and, you know, could really exacerbate this crisis, couldn't it? Absolutely. And, and we've already heard uh, from various agencies that we're expecting a, a heavier than normal uh, hurricane season in the Gulf of Mexico. So all of that, I think, is weighing very much on people's minds. And I think the market is pricing that in. Uh, so I guess you don't have much good news for us, basically. Right? Is that it? <laughs> um, I, you know, particularly on the refining side, I, I, it's a function of time. Eventually, this market will solve uh, itself with those refineries that were planned to come online um, in Asia and in Africa. But you know, in the short term, it's one of the. It, it, there's even less that could be done on the refining side than there can right now on the upstream or the crude oil side. So it is a bit of a bad news situation. The, the good news is for the companies that, that have refining assets, you know, you think about the big integrated like Exxon or Chevron or even, you know, Suncor, um, you know, they all have big refining assets that were big, often money losers for the companies for the past 10, 20 years. Now, you know, there's not the most profitable segments of the, of the business. Well, much more is mentioned. Uh, CommodityContacts.com. Rory, appreciate the analysis. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Uh, that's Rory Johnston, uh, Commodity Context uh, founder, CommodityContext.com. So you want a deep dive on, on all of this. Uh, he's got a really interesting newsletter posted at CommodityContext.com. Welcome back. Well, today is June the 6th. It was 78 years ago, June 6th, 1944. It was D-Day. The Normandy invasion, uh, the uh, Allied invasion of Normandy. Normandy, the big push, obviously, uh, against German troops in France and maybe the beginning of the end uh, for Nazi Germany. Juno Beach, as it was codenamed, was one of five landing areas. Units of the Canadian 3rd Infantry landed there. There was more than 21,000 of them who landed at Juno that day. Canada suffered 1,200 casualties. So it, it has a huge historic significance obviously in the course of the war and certainly from a canadian perspective uh there is a facility there the juno beach center 
uh, that is Canada's only second world, uh, only second world war museum and educational center in Europe. And it is at risk. There is a proposal for a uh, condominium complex in this area. And that would mean some significant changes uh, to the Juno Beach Center. So joining us to talk about uh, the, the threat that this development poses and why it's so important uh, that history be, be preserved. That is, he says, that history not be bulldozed. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. The one only Peter Mansbridge, award-winning journalist, author of uh, three best-selling books. He's a distinguished fellow of the Monk Center of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Also a patron of the Juno Beach Center. As an op-ed uh, in the Globe and Mail, uh, from the Globe and Mail over the weekend, laying all of this out. Peter Mansbridge, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, it's good to be with you, Rob. Well, yeah, this is such an important issue. Look, obviously, you know, not many Canadians get the opportunity to go there in person to visit France to see all of this firsthand. But why is it so important that that this remain there, this Juno Beach Center? Well, you know, it's obviously it's part of Canadian history, and that element of Canadian history was very important to the success of the Allied forces in the Second World War. There were three main countries involved on those landings on D-Day, and they were Great Britain, the United States, and Canada. You know, we we landed at Juneau Beach. We took, as you mentioned, uh, significant casualties. There were almost 400 uh, young Canadians lost their lives in that uh, invasion on that day. Uh, But more importantly, over the uh, throughout the Normandy campaign, there were thousands of Canadians who lost their lives. And the Juneau Beach Centre recognizes all of those Canadians and tells the story of our part uh, in the Normandy campaign and our overall part in the Second World War. Now, you know, I, I think it's important to say, when we landed at Juneau Beach, when those Canadian fellows from many parts of the country, the prairies, Ontario, Quebec, um, Atlanta, Canada, New Brunswick. The um, when they landed there, the, you know, they weren't landing for Canada. They were landing to liberate the French, and liberating the French meant they wanted to give the French back the power to make their own determination of the kind of country they wanted, kind of rules they wanted, kind of decisions they made. It wasn't Canada making those decisions? So it's important to recognize that in this little dispute that's going on that could have a serious impact on the Juneau Beach Centre, the French do obviously have rights. It's their country. Um, What we're looking for and what Canada is looking for and what a substantial number of French are looking for is to hold Canada in respect for what happened on June 6, 44. Uh, and so all those elements are important to remember. It's interesting. And you note in your piece, it was uh, on May 12th, our prime minister spoke with uh, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, and the official readout of that call, as they talked about important world issues like the situation in Ukraine, uh, was that they touched on this. Noting the approaching anniversary of June 6th, the leaders discussed the significance of Juno Beach the history and people of both nations and committed to protecting the site so future generations will remember the sacrifice of canadian soldiers who landed there in 1944 so that this rises to the level of a bilateral call between canada's prime minister and france's president really underscores the the importance doesn't it 
You're absolutely right. It definitely underscores that. It, the, the, there's another example much closer to home. You know, you have the uh, all-parliamentary committee with all the parties, the Conservatives, the Liberals, the NDP, uh, the Bloc, and the, um, uh, the Green Party, all agreeing that there should be protection for the Juno Beach Centre. And at a time when it's very rare to see all the parties or even a couple of the parties agree with each other on anything, that's significant too. But, you know, you're right, Macron and Trudeau uh, got together. They, you know, they included that in their statement on that day, which was a meeting mainly about Ukraine. But they included that they felt it should be said that places like Juno Beach, the Juno Beach Centre, should be protected and respected. It's a delicate situation because it's basically, a, you know, it's a, it's a community decision in terms of uh, access to the roads around this area where they want to build uh, luxury condominiums, roads that impact directly access to the Juneau Beach Center. So we're not talking about the Juneau Beach Center being destroyed. We're talking about the, ra- the land around it, which is access to the center for upwards of 100,000 tourists in the last year before COVID uh, to get there. So that's what's at issue here. And I think the, the, these various different uh, attempts to, to put this issue in the window, if you wish, um, are working. Because one of the ways around this is for that land that is designed now for beachfront condos to be used instead as a parkland around the Juneau Beach Center. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the hope that that could happen. And there seem to be some indications as recently as today that we may be heading in that direction. Well, and let's hope so. I mean, you know this as well. Look, obviously, you know, the, these coastal communities in France, they, they've suffered economically over the last few years. And, and so it's understandable that they'll be kind of viewing these issues through that lens uh, in terms of economic development and everything that will go along with this. So we can be sympathetic to that and, and still recognize the importance of this. Do you believe that there's a compromise here? What, what does that look like? Well, you know, I, I think there could be a compromise. Um, but, you, you know, you're bang on in terms of, and it gets back to my original point. I mean, the, <laughs> the French own that, that land, right? And they can make decisions based on, uh, you know, their, their own future in terms of what that land is going to be used for. And the, uh, the decision-making process all along the Normandy coast uh, has been in that vein. You know, to use it, uh, the property, it's beautiful. I don't know whether you've ever been there, but it's beautiful beachfront property all along there. It's ironic in a sense that it was the site of a major battle for about 80 kilometers along that coast, stretching from the British, the beaches where the British landed all the way to the beaches where the Americans landed. Um, But, you know, they they have to determine how these places are going to be used and we're talking about one particular little stretch of land. Um, and I think they've been surprised, the private developers, that there has been, you know, a considerable amount of attention displayed about this to the highest levels of government in both countries and to this strong group of 
veterans and veterans associations who have been trying to make the case in a you know in a firm but polite fashion uh, to the French that really this is not respectful of what happened in that, on that day and the days that followed. Uh, you know, we came here to, to help you, and the French took a lot, you know, it, it wasn't an easy time for the French during that invasion. There were a lot of French houses destroyed, um, French civilians who were killed in the bombardment around uh, the various little towns along the Normandy coast. Uh, so the, 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 not everybody was ecstatic about the way that unfolded, but still today, 78 years later, every year on June 1st, uh, a lot of things come to a standstill in respect and in memory of the various soldiers from the Allied nations who came to France, to those shores, to liberate the French people. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, hopefully this gets resolved. Uh, but Peter Mansbridge, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Though, really appreciate this. Thank you, Rob. Good to talk to you. Likewise. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, the one and only Peter Mansbridge, of course, longtime anchor of the National and CBC award-winning journalist, author, is a patron of the Juno Beach Center. You can find his uh, op-ed from the weekend at theglobeandmail.com. Uh, you can read more, by the way, at junobeach.org if you want to read about the Juno Beach Center and uh, much more as well at uh, thepetermansbridge.com, Peter's own website. I want to begin in this hour with uh, a look at where things stand around some, around some proposed changes to the Calgary's uh, smoking bylaw. Uh, Calgary City Council will be meeting this week, and uh, one of the items on the agenda is expected to be these proposed changes to the smoking bylaw. A proposed change that would see both smoking and vaping banned in Calgary parks and on Calgary pathways. Now, you think about how extensive that is. Uh, all these, these parks and pathways, this whole system, uh, that's a lot to, to patrol and enforce. But I guess, you know, further to that, though, there's the question of, well, what is this going to achieve? There was obvious purpose to addressing uh, indoor smoking and, and the threat posed by secondhand smoke. The arguments for this uh, are a lot different and, and maybe you could argue less compelling uh, in terms of, you know, people seeing this or more to the point, young people seeing this. Now, keep in mind, this doesn't apply to city sidewalks, which are much busier and more crowded. Uh, there's also concern about uh, litter or debris. But if we're talking about policies that, that further the cause of public health, is this what we should be looking at? Our next guest is concerned that, that perhaps this could be counterproductive, maybe even a distraction. Uh, she outlines these concerns in an op-ed piece in today's Calgary Herald, calgaryherald.com. Uh, Rebecca Haynes-Saz is an associate professor in community health sciences at the Cummings School of Medicine, University of Calgary. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for your interest. You know, and, and as you note in your piece, look, I mean, you know, uh, these are issues you've been working on literally for, for a couple of decades, uh, in particular when it comes to uh, addressing indoor smoking. So your thoughts just on, on you know, where some of these, these debates are at now versus, you know, the conversations we were having a decade or, or two decades ago? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm of the generation where we used to smoke indoors. In fact, right. we had an indoor smoking room in the library at my university, and yeah. we used to smoke on trains. And, you know, I think bans on indoor smoking protect both the smoker and everyone else around them not smoking from that secondhand smoke or what we call environmental smoke. So 
you know, these are positive changes. And I know it sounds a bit often to hear from me, someone working in public health and tobacco control, to say maybe this bylaw will be counterproductive. But I think we have to look at who is still smoking, the places where people are allowed to smoke, and the particular public health moment we're in in Calgary, if you will. And I just think that there are other priorities we should focus on. And uh, I'm actually worried that this could have unintended consequences of, you know, informally policing people out of public space. Yeah. Well, and and I do want to talk about that, but just to make it clear, because we do have rules that apply to what would be considered the outdoors. There are rules around Mm -hmm. building entrances. I know Calgary Transit has rules. You know, there are rules around children's playground, etc. So it's not as though we don't have policies in place that that regulate or or ban outdoor use of these products. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a, a complex system of municipal, provincial, and federal Uh, laws and bylaws around smoking, around entrances to hospitals, for example, um, in some provincial and federal parks, around attractions and in certain areas. As you mentioned in the lead-up, there's litter risk, um, you know, and as there are for any type of littering in the outdoors and natural spaces, and there's also fire risk. So those are things we need to be concerned about. However, in this instance, I don't feel like investing in a bylaw that there's much potential to actually enforce it on parks and paths. I'm also not convinced that it's a huge problem for people. I also don't think we really give people smoking or vaping enough credit because it is so highly regulated. I don't think people are intentionally going onto a bike path or walking path and, and blowing smoke in other people's direction or, or exposing like young kids. When I've been out with my kids or when I've been pregnant, People have made a concerted effort to move away from me, and I think yeah. it's because it's so regulated and, quite frankly, very stigmatized to still be a smoker or vapor. It is, and, and it's interesting because, as you noted, I mean, you know, smoking rates have come down considerably and, and maybe to some extent have bottomed out a little bit, and, and perhaps now we're, we're stuck on how to move the needle on, on that a little bit further. I, I don't get the sense that this is even really aimed at doing that in the first place, uh, let alone whether it will achieve anything to that end, but... When you talk about this being possibly counterproductive, I mean, you know, part of that is maybe it does distract us from finding better solutions. What do you see as, as maybe the uh, downside of taking this approach? Yeah, I think it's important to think about the unintended consequences and potential for public health harms whenever we're enacting a regulation. And in regards to illegal substances, another area where I work, we call this the paradox of prohibition. So regulating against a behavior doesn't necessarily always end that behavior or keep people safer. You really have to look at the harms associated with enforcing the law, especially when it comes to populations who may be more marginalized. So we've seen smoking rates come down, as you say, and they're down to about 14% in Alberta, even lower in some other provinces. And I'm not going to stereotype here, but by and large, what we know in terms of population prevalence is those folks who are still smoking are more likely to be lower SES, um, you know, less economically, socially privileged people. Um, And some people say, well, you know, just don't smoke in those places, don't smoke in those parks. But it can become another lever for citizens and also police or security guards to, you know, come up to folks, get them to move along, tell them they don't belong there, and then maybe even issue, um, you know, a non-criminal sanction, like a a ticket that, you know, is a burden for folks to pay. So I think there's a potential for that um, just because who 
is still smoking and who would be in a, in a public place smoking is, is someone who might have less privilege. Well, yeah, and that's an interesting point. I mean, I think of people who maybe live in, in shared housing or have roommate or even just other family members that so they don't want to, to smoke around, uh, don't have the luxury of, you know, a, a large backyard to go into, and obviously then have to avoid crowded sidewalks. And, and the idea that somebody, you know, finding some solace in, in a wide open park uh, just to get away from everybody else, that, that now we want to take that away. I mean, is, is that helpful? Yeah, exactly. I, I think... You always have to weigh the harms against the benefits. And this is something that I've argued about uh, the harms of policies in tobacco for quite some time. When we first started to regulate smoking in indoor spaces, you know, we were concerned about people, for example, single parents of young children um, who would try and make an effort to go outside to smoke and maybe leave their children alone you know, those types of uh, risks we need to anticipate and think about. And also, you know, in, in these hard economic times, going outside to an urban park may be something that people do to de-stress and enjoy space. Uh, and you can say, well, you know, just don't smoke there, smoke at home. But maybe people are also trying to protect the people in their homes and, right. uh, you know, telling them that they're putting everyone else at risk by being in a wide open space in a park. Like, I just don't think that message is going to fly when we've been hearing in the time of the pandemic that uh, we're all safer when we're outside, that the air is safer for us. We'll see what uh, comes of the debate this week and where this all goes from here, but uh, we'll leave it there for now. Professor, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Appreciate the insight. Yeah, I appreciate being on. Thanks. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Rebecca haynes saw who's uh, professor, associate professor in community health sciences at the Cummings School of Medicine, University of Calgary. Uh, you can read more from her. She's uh, written about this uh, op-ed piece in the Calgary Herald today. So, yeah, I, I, I think she raises some really excellent points about how this could potentially be counterproductive in a lot of ways and is a distraction from more meaningful public health policy. On top of that, I think you've got the whole issue where we're lumping vaping and smoking in together and we're just treating it the same. And I think there's a downside to that as well. I'm not supportive of a policy that says ban smoking in parks, but still allow vaping. But even that would be uh, an improvement over this because then you're creating another incentive for smokers to make that switch. And I think there's some public health value in that. Uh, we can't assume or, or pretend like, you know, tobacco products and vaping products are the same because they're not. And when it comes to the, the threat posed to the user, not the same. When it comes to the secondhand product uh, that they they generate, we can't pretend that that risk is the same because it's not. Uh, so, yes, I think we need to recognize in whatever we're doing when it comes to regulating smoking and vaping, that one is preferable to the other. That's not to endorse one, but just to recognize the reality that, yes, we would prefer smokers vape. We certainly don't want it the other way. I don't think we could pretend that they're the same. Unfortunately, this bylaw, on top of all of the other problems, treats them the same. But again, what are we trying to achieve here and how on earth are we going to enforce this? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.